by show of hands, how many of you have ever played the lottery? No shame. Come on. There's probably more of you. It's okay. A scratchy, maybe some Keno, Powerball, Mega Millions, right? Yeah. Did you know that the odds of winning the Mega Million is 1 in 258,890,850? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I had to rehearse that one over and over, make sure I got all those numbers right. Now, why do people play the lottery when the odds are so stacked against them? I think it's because people figure, hey, at $2 a ticket, what could it hurt, right? And if we were to win, we figure, I'd never have to work again. If I win that Powerball, that Mega Millions, you'd never have to work. My family would be all set. My family's family would be all set. I could even be like Santa Claus and help everybody out, right? We'd be able to help people down on their luck. And with that kind of money, we figure we would never run out. Have you ever followed up uh, any of the stories of people who have actually won the lottery? They've done these, 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 uh, these, these cover stories where someone wins and wins it big and then they, they go and visit them 10, 12, 15, 20 years down the road and see how their life has turned out. One woman named Evelyn Adams um, thought her money would never run out and she won not once but twice. She defeated the odds twice in the New Jersey lottery in the 80s and took a, a total haul of $5.3 million dollars. And in 2012, the New York Post caught up with her to see how she was doing. And in just a few years later, she was living in a trailer park, broke, working two jobs just to make ends meet. And you figure, how did that happen? How do you, how do you lose $5.3 million? And she says, well, um, there were endless requests for help. Couldn't say no. And there was also this gambling problem over in Atlantic City. And before long, the money ran out. And she's not an anomaly. In 1997, Billy Harrell in Texas won $31 million. And he tried to be a modern-day Santa Claus, help people pay bills. He'd buy cars for people, buy houses for people, which is super generous. One Thanksgiving, he bought over 500 uh, turkeys and gave them out generously to the poor, which those are all good things, right? Within two years, two years, he and his wife were divorced. All the money was gone. And in his depression, tragically, he took his own life. Now there is story after story after story. I read 20 of them uh, this week. And it was the same kind of story that eventually every one of these people had lost um, every penny. What's my point? Well, the first one is don't play the lottery. <laughs> okay, this is for free. This not even, has nothing to do with my sermon. It's not a wise investment of your money. Given the odds, you're likely not going to win. You're going to spend more than you gain. And even if you do beat the odds and win, the, winning the lottery doesn't solve all your problems. But here's my real point. It doesn't matter how much money you make in this life. Eventually, everything runs out. You don't have to know the second law of thermodynamics. Which, by the way, does anyone know the second law of thermodynamics? There you go, Phil. I knew you'd know it. <laughs> I knew it. Simply what it means is that there is a natural trend for everything in this world towards entropy and decay. That everything eventually runs out. If you're like, if you come into my house, we go, we go food shopping on Tuesdays. By Sunday, it's all gone. We've been, my kids have eaten us out and home. 
We do laundry. It seems like the, the, the washer and the dryer are constantly going, but we're always seeming to run out of clean clothes. And despite the massive quantities that we buy at Costco, every month we run out of diapers, toiletries, paper towels, and everything else. And at the end of the month, the paycheck runs out as well. Why? Because eventually everything runs out. New England Patriot fans, listen to me. Eventually, Tom Brady moves or retires. He can't play forever. Eventually, Belichick will retire, right? And the dynasty will be over. We can prolong our homes, uh, buildings, and cars with maintenance and upkeep. It seems like every other month, I'm fixing some appliance in my house. And not even the ones that people have done damage. They're just sitting there doing nothing except their job. But what happens? Components break, things break, and you have to replace them and fix them. Eventually, everything breaks apart. And eventually, everything runs out. Today, we come to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in John chapter 2. And as Marie said, we're on page 887 in the hardcover Bibles underneath your seats. And we're going to see Jesus confront the reality that eventually everything runs out. And as we work through John chapter 2, we're going to see this situation unfold at a wedding where the wine runs out. And this is more than just a social faux pas. This could mean enduring shame for the bridegroom's family. We're going to look at how Jesus solves the wine problem by performing his first recorded miracle. And then finally, we're going to see the significance of the sign. John says, more than a miracle, this was a sign pointing to something as Jesus manifested his glory in Galilee. So if you hang with me here today, we're going to see the situation, the solution, and the sign. Let's start in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Okay, let's stop right there. John is setting the scene for us here. It's a wedding in the town of Cana in this region of Galilee. Now, if you remember from last week, our passage ended with Nathaniel putting his, his faith in Christ. If you remember, initially he doubted when he heard about Jesus and said, how could anything good come um, from Nazareth? But as Jesus showed him a, a, just a glimpse of his glory, he believed and followed him, right? And then Jesus told him, hey, Nathaniel, if you follow me, you're going to see even greater things than these. And now the scene moves to Cana in Galilee, which John tells us at the end of his gospel that Nathaniel's actually from Cana. So the very next scene, he says, hey, you from Cana, I'm going to show you something even greater than what you've seen. And they step into this wedding in Cana. It's about four miles from where, uh, where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. I almost think these might have been like rival towns, right? Like high school rivalries. How could anything good come from Nazareth, right? And we find that Jesus and his mother Mary and the disciples are invited to this wedding um, in Cana. Now you have to understand, weddings in the first century uh, in Israel are nothing like weddings that we go to um, today. These celebrations would last up to a week. See, in this culture, you did not skimp on a wedding. There was no, uh, no, no thinking about the budget. This was a massive um, celebration. And you would invite the whole community, even your extended network, to the wedding. 
Because in this culture, the wedding wasn't just exclusively to celebrate the love between um, this husband um, and, and his wife. It, it, was, it was a time to bring the whole community together to celebrate the next generation, to say, look, look what God has done. He's brought these, these two people together, and now our family legacy will live on. And if you think about a culture and a community, the more strong, thriving, healthy families that you have, the stronger the, the community is, right? You, if we've got um, uh, families thriving, the whole community will thrive. The, the economy, the military defense, everything together works as God builds these societies with these strong and healthy families. That's why um, no first century Jew ever said weddings, marriage, it's just a piece of paper. They would never have looked at it that way. So here we are at this celebration, Jesus, his mother, probably some other members of his family as well, and they're here to celebrate this wedding in Cana. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now in a culture that highly values hospitality, to run out of wine is nothing short of a social disaster. Okay, here's how it worked. The bill would have been covered by the bridegroom and his family. The, the, the entire wedding is covered by the, the husband um, and his family. And they're responsible, not just for the ceremony and all that, but, but to provide enough food and drink to ensure that everybody was well-fed and had enough to drink. It'd be like inviting people to come over to your house for dinner and then running out of food where there's still people coming through the line, right? You'd feel the way, like I invited you to a meal and I don't have anything for you anymore, right? And for a celebration of this caliber, you need to ensure that there's plenty of wine because wine represented joy and celebration. This wasn't something you just casually had every day. It was to, to celebrate this momentous occasion. And to run out of wine was to essentially say, hey, party's over, everyone go home, there's no more celebration. This would have been a massive dilemma. In this culture, there's no first century packy where they can hop on a camel and go out and pick up a couple of cases of wine to keep the party going, right? No one can make a, 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 a beer and wine run to close out the celebration. This would have, this would have brought immense embarrassment and shame on your family. And in an honor-shame culture, that stain stays with you forever. Forever you'll be walking through the town as the people who didn't plan well enough, who weren't willing to spend the money, who weren't willing to provide the, the right and proper celebration for this couple. And as this couple's beginning their new journey as a, as a new family unit, it's beginning with the steps of shame. This is not a mere social misstep. This is a cataclysmic spiral of embarrassment that ends in catastrophe. And so we're brought to this reality that the wine runs out. And the wine runs out because eventually everything runs out. Don't you feel the weight of that? Don't you feel the weight that so much of our life, so much of our time is spent refilling the necessities that seem to always run out or maintaining the spaces because everything just on its own becomes undone. There's a reason why almost blindfolded I can walk through Market Basket and Home Depot and tell you where everything is on the shelves. I find myself when people are like, hey, where's the, I'm like, oh, that's aisle nine. Mid, midway through, 
you know, on middle of the bay. Like I, I can tell you where everything is because I'm in there so much, just refilling the pantry and maintaining the home. But refilling the fridge and fixing appliances aren't the only things that run out and come undone, are they? Given enough time, everyone runs out of patience. Everyone runs out of energy. I mean, is anyone tired? <laughs> yeah, anyone frustrated? We run out of money. We run out of relationships. And one day, every one of us is going to run out of time. We're going to hear that phone call that says, you've got six months to live. Drew Holcomb, he's a singer-songwriter out of Nashville, writes this. You better take a picture. You better write it down. What you always wanted won't always be around. It's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. Every curtain falls eventually. Poetically, he's getting at that same notion. No matter what you're chasing, no matter what you're searching for in life, eventually the curtain falls. So what's running out in your life right now that particularly feels weighty? Is it time? Is it patience? Is it energy? Relationships? Money? Is it life itself? Eventually, everyone has to confront the reality that everything runs out and our only hope is to look to Jesus like Mary did. Look with me at verse four. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, this is probably not the response that you thought Jesus would give. I mean, even evidenced by the fact that when Marie was reading that, we're kind of confronted with, man, that's, that seems harsh, right? Now, she read it with some great attitude in there. I love that. Now, a couple things. In the 21st century, like that's right now, it is not polite or encouraged to address your mother as woman. <laughs> now, I'm full-blooded Italian. I made that mistake once in my life. And never again. I'd never seen my mom move that fast. Right? But this is first century Israel. It's a different culture. This address isn't rude. It, the, the modern equivalent of this would have been like saying ma'am or madam or dear woman. Now, it's certainly more of a formal response. It's certainly less relational, but it's not rude. Okay? This is the perfect son of God. He was never rude. But it's not endearing either. So, so we're right to go, that doesn't seem quite right. It's abrupt. And add to that, Jesus' question to his mother, what does this have to do with me? And we're left confused as to why Jesus would respond to his mother in the situation this way. Now the key to understanding his response is to look at his explanation, right? He gives the explanation. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, the key word for you to notice there, if you're in your Bibles, just circle that word, hour. Jesus says, my hour has not come. Now, Jesus isn't like looking at his, um, his watch and going, you know, it's getting late. Um, my, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of tired. I'd rather not get into all this miracle work. Maybe tomorrow. That's not what he's saying. In, in John's gospel, Jesus is going to use the word hour some 15 times to refer to something more than just a time stamp, okay? And so when he does that, when he's referring to his hour or my time, he's talking about the hour of his death. 
and subsequent resurrection. This, this ultimate revelation of his glory. Remember, John told us why he's writing his gospel. He said he's writing his gospel so that you would see the glory of Jesus and receive him and believe in his name so that you could have life. John's saying, I'm writing this and I'm gonna organize my gospel in such a way that you see the glory of Jesus and put your faith and hope and trust in him. And when you do that, you will truly live. What Jesus is saying is, I'm, it's not the time yet to fully uh, reveal the, 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 uh, and manifest my glory. The hour of my death has not arrived. I'm not, not ready to go public with all of it right now at this wedding. And just so you know, mother, the timing and direction of my ministry is determined by my father in heaven, not my earthly family. There's a lot of times that throughout the gospel where he says, listen, let's just, and he, and he speaks almost in this, it's not harsh, but it's abrupt where he says, listen, my real family, my real brother and sisters are the ones who do my father's will. He's saying, just because you're my mother doesn't mean you can direct what I do. I get my direction from my heavenly father. John Piper's helpful here, commenting on this passage. He's saying like this, uh, speaking as if um, Jesus was speaking. He's saying, your relationship with me as mother has no special weight here. You are a woman like every other woman. My father in heaven, not any human being, determines what miracles I perform. And the pathway into my favor is faith, not family. Jesus didn't say this to slight his mother or to be difficult or to be indifferent. You have to realize Jesus loved his mother, loved her dearly. In fact, as he was going to the cross and as he knew he was going to die, he appointed John, the writer of this gospel right here, to become like a new son for her, to take care of his mother. Jesus, at, the, at the point of his torture and death, as he's being scourged, he's thinking about the well-being and care of his mother. Jesus loves his mom, but he's also not a mama's boy. He's not going to be controlled by his mother either. Over the course of his ministry, we see Jesus repeatedly asserting the primacy of his heavenly father to direct his priorities and his ministry. Nevertheless, we can tell that Jesus must have given some kind of indication that he would do something to help because um, uh, Mary's next words were, uh, do whatever he tells you. Maybe it was a nonverbal gesture. Maybe it's an unrecorded comment. But whatever it was, Mary understands that Jesus is willing to help and to do so on his terms and in his way. Now, as we remember, the family's reputation is on the line. If you can enter into the kind of climax of the story, the community celebration hangs in the balance. Mary feels the weight of the moment, the tension, the social chaos that could, that could ensue from this. And she comes to Jesus and saying, if there's anybody who could help, you can. Look at verse six. There were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Okay, Jesus begins his solution to the problem. Now these jars aren't inconsequential. These aren't ordinary jars. John told us that these are jars used for purification purposes according to Jewish law. And let me tell you a little bit about that. 
As a Jewish person in this time, you had to give daily thought to remaining clean as it relates to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus was given to the Jews to say there there are ways to keep your life clean and pure so that you may be free to go to the temple, to the synagogues, to give your, uh, your, your rites of worship so that you can continue and maintain this relationship with God. An unclean person could not approach the sanctuary of God to worship and offer sacrifice. So daily, if you were living in this time, you would be giving daily thought to how you could remain clean and make sure that even the objects in your house remained in a state of cleanliness. Because not only could you become unclean, but the things in your house could be unclean. And if you as a clean person touch something that's unclean, now that uncleanness comes on to you. So you just imagine kind of always keeping those laws in your head, making sure that you yourself are clean and that the things around you are clean because you don't want to be in the state of uncleanness. And if you found yourself in a state of uncleanness, you'd have to go through this ritual washing. And that's what these jars were for. They kept water uh, preserved because the stoneware couldn't contract uncleanness. So you knew at any time, I have these jars ready to go. If I find myself in a state of uncleanliness, I've got the water ready to go so that I can perform those rites. These jars kept the water clean and preserved for those purification rituals. Now notice, John also tells us the quantity and capacity of the jars. If you remember, there's six jars of varying capacity, and John says each one holds about 20 or 30 gallons, respectively. Now, by the way, when you, when you come to these things in the Bible, what you need to be thinking is, oh, this sounds like eyewitness testimony. If you notice the details of this story, he remembers the material of the jars, right? They were stone. The type of jars, these were purification jars. The quantity, there were six of them. Capacity, they're, they're about 20 or 30 gallons each. Earlier, he told us that the, the day, of the, it was on the third day. It was, um, uh, he knows the geographic location. If you add all that together, this is not the stuff of myths and legends. This reads like a news report because that's exactly what it is. He's, he's telling you about something that actually happened. And like when you interview someone who's seen something, he's giving um, the kind of detail that an eyewitness would be able to give. This word gospel that we translate into English is good news. It's news, not advice. He's telling you this is something that happened. See, news is something you receive and respond to. He's giving you news about what's happened. He's not making up a story about Jesus. He's reporting what he saw with his eyes Jesus do with the kind of specificity and detail that's consistent with genuine eyewitness testimony. So Jesus takes these big jars. Uh, Jesus said, hey, take those big jars, the ones over there, the, the ones that are used for purification purposes, and I want you to fill them up with water. And the servants respond, and they fill them to the brim. Verse eight, he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now stop right there. The servants drew from the jar they took it to the master, and the master, uh, uh, the master of the feast was like the, the master of ceremonies, okay? His job is to ensure that guests are having a good time, making sure everyone had what they needed. When one plate of food was, was empty, to, okay, make sure we bring in the hors d'oeuvres here. He's kind of running the show, making sure everybody can have a good time. 
Now he takes this water now become wine and he cannot believe how good it tastes. It's remarkable to him. It, it, it's so remarkable that he's almost like, hey, wait, we got to pause for a moment. Like I, bridegroom, come over here. Listen to what he says. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. See, it was customary to serve the good wine first while people could still appreciate the taste of good wine. This is when people are still swirling it around in their glass and going, ooh, this has some cranberry notes to it. And look at the legs on it. I mean, this is, what vintage is this, right? That's at the beginning. You, you serve the good stuff first. And then when people are too full to care or too buzzed to know the difference, that's when you bring out the box wine. That's when Colorosi comes out, right? You serve the good, more expensive wine first. And then as the celebration goes on, you can cut cost by bringing out the cheaper option. And he's not shaming anybody for doing that. He's saying that, that makes good fiscal sense. But here, the master of the feast marvels that the better wine, better than what they had even at the beginning, has been saved until now. Now listen, as best we can tell, the guests, the wedding party, even the host never knew there was a problem, right? Mary comes before everyone's going, hey, there's no more wine. And Jesus performs this miracle behind the scenes. No one knows. His timing is perfect. The problem arises and it's solved without any notion, any, any commotion. And think about it. It spares the bridegroom and his family any embarrassment and shame. Right? It'd be one thing if everyone knew and now there's that shame and Jesus solves it, but he steps in before there's even an awareness of what's going on. The only people who really know what happened are the servants, the disciples, and Mary. Also take note, the amount of water turned to wine is so much that no one could say, well, Jesus just performed some kind of sleight of hand. You know, he had a, a bottle of wine tucked into his tunic, and when no one was looking, dropped it in. No, no. There was so much wine. If you do the math, six containers holding somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons each. You convert that to bottles of wine, 750 milliliters each. You get somewhere between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. You can't hide that in a tunic, Right? This is not sleight of hand. This is a genuine miracle. Now, some of the more sciencey minded people are going, well, how did he do it? Like, what's going on at the molecular level? The answer is, we don't know. John doesn't know. He's not, he's not uh, 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 all that together uh, uh, wondering about that. All we know is this. The servants fill the jar. They draw some out and they take it to the master of the feast. And somewhere in between the initial filling and when the master drinks, Jesus takes H2O and turns it into V-I-N-O. That's all we know. Remember, this is not Colorossi. This is the good stuff. This is like Chateau Margaux, Premier Cru of Bordeaux, where a standard bottle, not even their good stuff, a standard bottle costs you $650 retail. This is the good stuff. And the master of the feast, his job is to know good wine from bad wine. He's a sommelier of his time. And he knows this is the good stuff. What's more amazing to me than, 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 than the, the, the quantity of wine, the fact that he can do it, what's more amazing to me 
is that Jesus responds to their need in an amazing way and in his humility remains in the background. He doesn't steal the spotlight from the bride and groom on their big day. And when the master of the feast gives all the credit to the bridegroom, Jesus doesn't go, no, 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 no. Listen, I did that. My first miracle. You know, he stays in the background. He doesn't feel the need to correct the master of the feast. He simply lets the bridegroom receive the credit, receive the commendation that Jesus has earned. The bridegroom has nothing to do with it. In fact, you could say it was his blunder that created the situation in the first place. But thankfully, Jesus was there not only to solve the problem, but to bring the better wine. So what's the point of this miracle? John says to us, it's a sign. It's pointing to something. So let's look at verse 11 and see the significance of the sign. This, John says, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. John tells us this miracle was the first of his signs. Now listen, over the course of John's gospel, he is going to highlight seven signs. He's doing this on purpose. Each one of his signs is going to reveal another aspect of his glory. It's going to give us another degree of his glory. It's like he's saying Jesus' glory is like this beautiful, uh, perfectly cut diamond. And every chapter, I'm going to show you another aspect, another angle at his glory so that you see it. Here, Jesus turns water into wine, and by the time we get through chapter 11, we're going to see Jesus cleanse the temple, heal a nobleman's son, heal a lame man, feed the multitude, heal a blind man, and he's even going to raise a dead man to life. So that begs the question, what is a sign? What does John mean by that? Well, a sign is a public work of Jesus that John has selected to show that Jesus is the one in whom we're supposed to believe so that we might live. Like all signs, the signs themselves aren't the point, right? The sign is not the point. The point is what the sign points to, amen. We're not supposed to focus on the wonder of the sign. Rather, we're supposed to focus on the worker of the sign. The signs are pointing to Jesus. The sign, John tells us, manifested his glory. Now, I just love that word, manifested. When's the last time you used that word, manifested? We just don't use that word anymore. Here's what that word means. It means to put something on display where it's demonstrated so that when you see it, it's clear and obvious. What John is saying is the glory of Jesus was demonstrated. It was on display and it was clear. The disciples could see it. You notice the disciples aren't focused on the wine, are they? The disciples are focused on Jesus and they put their faith in him. And as we walk through this gospel, we're going to see um, that, the, that the faith of the disciples isn't a static thing. It's something that's growing and deepening and maturing over time, which gives us a picture of how our faith grows, matures, and develops over time. The disciples have taken another step in their many steps of faith. Now let's ask, what does this sign point to? How does it show us that Jesus is God's son, the one in whom we are to believe so that we might live. Let me give you three ways that this sign points to Jesus. Number one, it shows us that Jesus is the better bridegroom. Remember, the responsibility of providing all the food and beverage for the celebration ultimately fell on the bridegroom and his family. 
Now, we don't know why they ran out. Perhaps they miscalculated the guest to invite ratio. Perhaps they were on a tight budget. Perhaps more people showed up. Like, oh, I don't remember inviting you. Regardless of the reason, the reputation is on the line. Fortunately for them, the true and faithful bridegroom, Jesus Christ, was doing what the bridegroom was supposed to do but failed to do. Listen how Nancy Guthrie puts it. She writes this. Jesus provided such exquisite water become wine, the wedding guests thought that the other groom had simply saved the best for last. It's as if the gospel writer wanted us to see right off who Jesus really is, the true bridegroom, the one God's people had been waiting for ever since the first bridegroom, Adam, failed so miserably in Eden. Jesus is the true bridegroom for his bride, the church. And here in John 2, we get a glimpse of our true bridegroom. Where we fail, the bridegroom does not. Have you ever wondered, why did Jesus choose a wedding to be his, the, the, the scene of his first miracle? Think about it. The Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis 2 between Adam and Eve. And we see how that falls apart. You go to Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that marriage itself, the institution itself, is meant to be a picture to put on display the love and union between Jesus Christ and his church. And if you read all the way to the end, the Bible ends with a wedding. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 8, we see the marriage supper of the Lamb. John writes this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out. Can we just stop for a second? The the saints' worship of Jesus is going to sound like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many pearls of thunder. The kind of thunder that when it hits, you kind of jump back. When all the saints of history worship the, 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 the risen Savior, it's going to sound like thunder. And they cry out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage uh, of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The Bible begins with a marriage. It ends with a marriage. It's fitting that Jesus says, hey, just so you know, I am the true and faithful bridegroom. This wedding in Cana is a preview of what's to come, that Jesus is the true and better bridegroom. Number two, the sign points to uh, uh, the reality that Jesus is the better purification. You remember those jars that Jesus told the servants to fill? Remember how I told you these are jars for purification? They represent the old covenant. They represent the old system. See, Jesus could have had the servants gather up some other containers, right? Going, look, those are special. We can't touch those. Go find any other container that you can. Look through the village. Find me some big jars. But he specifically tells them, take those containers. See, Jesus is subtly saying, There is coming a day, and it will be very soon, you will not have to labor to remain clean anymore. Because when I clean you, you're going to be clean in a way that you could have never achieved on your own. Jesus takes the purification jars, and he fills them with his wine. And when he does that, he's repurposing them. It's a sign. 
It's pointing to the reality that the grace of Jesus replaces the old system with a better savior. Jared Wilson writes, this is a vivid illustration of the transformation of the old water of Mosaic religion into the new wine of the kingdom. Now listen, all the details aren't filled out yet. You gotta read the rest of your Bible to put all that together. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews does it. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts, listened, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All the purification rites could never have purified their conscience, could never have purified their bodies. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus is the better high priest who's able to make our hearts, our consciences, even our bodies clean. Not kind of clean, not mostly clean, clean. Jesus brings the truer and better purification. Number three, the sign points to the reality that Jesus is the better wine. We've looked and seen how Jesus solved the wine problem at the wedding of Cana, and that was giving us a taste of what's to come because Jesus is the one who can solve the problem that eventually everything runs out. Now listen to me. No matter where you put yourself today on the spectrum of faith, I, I would say in a, in a room this size, we have people who are uh, kind of on the agnostic end of going, you know, I'm not completely disinterested, I'm not completely indifferent, to over here of like, I've memorized every word of the Bible, okay? Somewhere between those two, we probably find ourselves today. But no matter where you find yourself on the spectrum of belief, everyone can probably agree the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. It's not just that the wine runs out. It's that everything runs out. We live in a broken, fractured, and fragmented world. And not only is the world out there broken, but if we're truly honest with ourselves, we know that we're often part of the problem. We often contribute to the drain cycle, don't we? And just like the bridegroom in Cana failed to provide the wine, we don't measure up either. And do you remember when the master of feasts drinks that water turned to wine? You remember how he marveled, not just at the, the, the quality, but so much that, that, that he seems like the bridegroom has done something special here. He calls him over to commend him. And we see that the bridegroom gets credit for the good wine, even though he had nothing to do with it. What's happening there is he gets the credit for what Jesus has done. Follow with me. Jesus does the work. He brings the better wine and the bridegroom in Cana gets the credit for it. And that's exactly how salvation works. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. He does the work of living the life that you and I couldn't live and we get the credit. At the wedding, the water turned to wine is poured out so that the wedding can continue and on the cross, the blood of Christ is poured out so that our lives can continue. He does the work, we get the credit. Jesus brings the better wine of salvation to all who put their trust in him. So family, what is running out in your life? What are you using to fill that emptiness? Because the reality is, is you, when you feel empty, you fill it with something. 
No one just sits in that state of emptiness. And I'm not talking about the pantry. And I'm not talking about um, Home Depot runs to keep your house from falling over. I'm talking about in your life, the things that give it meaning and purpose, the things that make life worth living. When you feel empty there, when you feel distracted there, when you feel like you've got nothing left, where are you turning to fill that emptiness? This is the hope of the gospel, that we can come to Jesus in our emptiness, and he gives us his everything. Whatever is running out in your life, you can trust that Jesus will bring the better wine in your situation because he himself is the better wine. He shows up, he brings himself, he gives us all of him. And he even cares about your current moment, your current running out, whatever, whatever is running out in your life, you can trust that Jesus will provide. Now listen, trusting in Jesus doesn't mean you're never gonna run out of groceries. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna live paycheck to paycheck. It doesn't mean that sometimes you're gonna say, I don't even have enough to provide for my means. But what it does mean is this, that you'll never run out of what you truly need because you can't run out of Jesus. He will give you what you truly need. And when you have him, you realize he really is all you ever need. And for the believer, there's a promise coming day that will never run out of anything. And that's where we're supposed to anchor our hope that there, even if I run out today, there is coming a day when I'll never run out. Look what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. In fact, the prophet Amos says the mountains are going to drip with sweet wine. The hills are going to be flow with it. We're, ne we're never going to run out of wine because it just flows down from the mountain. And God is preparing a feast of all peoples from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to gather a feast of his people. And it's going to be a table full of the richest affair. Verse seven, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And he will, put your hope here, folks, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away every tear from all faces. And the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in salvation. Jesus is the better wine that's offered to all of us this morning to drink and be satisfied. Now as we close, we need to be real careful that we don't miss Jesus this morning. Everybody's, mine included, our default posture is to stare the Son of God in the face and walk away. Sometimes we do that indifferently. Sometimes we're disinterested. Sometimes we're too busy. Sometimes we explain him away. Sometimes we're overly familiar with him. We go, oh yeah, I've heard that story before. Water into wine, I got it. We cannot become overly familiar with him. Sometimes our inclination is to try to impress Jesus with all these good works that we've done. Look at me, Jesus, accept me. Look what I've done for you. Or sometimes we pretend 
like we don't need him. But all of us have an inclination to see past him and not believe. John says, I wrote my gospel that you would see him and believe. Let's see that Jesus is the bridegroom all of us need. He's the purification we could never achieve on our own. And he's the better wine that satisfies our every longing.